half of the of the first part of the conversation. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about heavy editing. I I just mean you know just like if it was boring up until X mark, then you know just cut it there and keep the rest. I usually I I probably need to start doing that. Sometimes I uh, me and my friends will get on and just ramble on for about thirty minutes before we actually dig into anything. But yeah. Well, I I tell you, your name makes me think of the fact that uh, uh, the Romans apparently they had to uh, cultivate the the almond tree because the wild almond tree, its fruit. Its seeds are full of cyanide. Um, really? Yeah. So when I think of an almond tree in the wild, it should be kind of a nice image, but I think of a tree with lots of poisonous... Uh, well, I guess if it's, a, if it's a tree nut, then that's the fruit of a seed. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's, or it's, the, it's the seed of a fruit, I mean. You know, that's what I would assume yeah. it would be. Yeah, I guess. I mean, a- I don't... I don't know exactly. I don't know much. I'm really interested because I don't, I actually don't know a whole lot about it. I just, uh, I went with it because I kind of had, I just kept seeing it everywhere. There was like a a span of like two months and I just was at, I don't know, I guess you'd call it synchronicities or something like that. And uh, it was just constantly in my imagination too, almond tree. And then um, after that, I just, I was like, I'll just start, just for fun, start using that as like a, so I started a podcast. I was like, I'll just use that as a name or whatever. And then from there, just picking up little nuggets about almond trees since then. But is it is it available as a podcast too? Um, it was. I mean, I have it now. But yeah, I did almond tree. Um, why you want it? <laughs> no, no. I because um, if if uh, if it's available as a podcast, it means I can listen to it while I walk the dog and not be burning up. Oh, data. oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It should be. Uh, most of the stuff. I upload to the podcast as well, except for um, if I just do like a short like solo clip or something, I usually don't. But if it's a conversation I have with other people, I usually put that on podcast. Sometimes it's just a little later because it might take me a day or two or something before or I'll just forget. Then I, But yeah, it's a, it should be on there. It's the same like purple logo thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's really interesting about them cultivating it, though. I've never seen an almond tree in the wild. I'd love to, but... Uh, well, it makes me wonder if there's such a thing as an almond fruit. Um, I don't I don't know. Um, so you're saying that the name almond tree was chosen because of basically inexplic- inexplicable synchronicities. Yeah, sort of. So I... Um, it kind of happened around the... Uh, it's kind of... I mean, it's sort of a long story. The... I had this dog for like 10 years and then she passed away. And so it kind of happened right around then. And then I had gone on an extended fast and then she ended up passing away the day I ended my fast. And so it was like, it was just weird. And then after that, um, I think some of it was mixed with that part in Ecclesiastes too, Ecclesiastes 12. And it says when the almond tree is despised or when the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. Man goes to his eternal home in the morning go about in the streets and so I think that kind of was already circulating in my head because that's one of my favorite chapters in the bible and then but then after that I think some of it was it just springtime coming into and then I'd hear like people giving sermons but then they'd reference the almond tree which I haven't really heard since which is kind of strange but it was like just popping up all the time and then it was just in my head too like I just kept 
imagining it or picturing it. But then um, since then, I just kind of learned that uh, it's basically, as far as I know, it's the menorah is because it's made like it says in, I think, Exodus, it's made like almond blossoms. And so it's uh, it says with an almond blossom and a flower or something like that. And then there's the whole play on in Jeremiah, the, uh, what do you see the branch of an almond tree? And so it has to do with like seeing and the lamp of the body is the eye, which is like the lamp of the menorah. It's like got all these weird little connections with like the um, it being because when he goes to Jeremiah, I think he says, what do you see? I see the branch of an almond tree. And then when you look up the Hebrew, I've heard people reference this a lot. The word almond is very close to see or something like that. And then the. And then it's the also the menorah, which is the lamp of the whatever. So I don't know. Yeah, it's got all it, but all that came after, like I said. Yeah. So anyway, this is this is pretty amazing. Um, I should say that um, at least on my end, you do you do kind of um, break up uh, and 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 get scrambled a little bit for a few moments, but I still mostly understand you. Um, it seems to me like you have a, well, you have a pretty deep history with scripture. I don't know how long, uh, you know, your relationship with it has been, but it sounds pretty deep. And, and I'm, I'm interested in, in sort of like how long you've been reading scripture and what ways and sort of what, what your history with that has been. Oh, man. Um, okay. The, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. I grew up Christian. And so... Um, I didn't really read at all the Bible. I guess I got pieces of it, you know, that probably retained as I was growing up. But then I never, I only read probably a little bit of Proverbs, maybe a little bit of the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, literally through my whole life up until I was probably like mid to late 20s. Um, and I kind of, you know, in college did whatever. Then that was kind of around when I started coming back to God it was probably like 27 or so. And then that was when I started reading. Um, and I, I hardly read anything my whole life. Though. I just didn't, I hated reading. And so I just wouldn't read. Um, so I basically read Calvin and Hobbes was the only thing I read growing up. And then, uh, and then scripture probably basically just since I probably about that time, I've just been, that's my number one thing I read, I think. And then if I get to something else, I'll read something else. But, uh, and so when I started reading that, I would go out and walk my dog's um in this big park and i would just i'll just i still do it now i'll just go out and walk and read to myself out loud for like and just walk in circles around this park um and that's that's one of the reasons i never read really growing up is because i would um it's because i thought i had no reading comprehension until i started reading to myself out loud and then i was like oh i can actually remember this and so it's just kind of that's basically been my extent of it i guess the past five years I guess in uh, speech therapy grad school because by training I am a speech therapist uh, they taught us the, the so-called simple view of reading which says that reading ability is decoding times comprehension that where where decoding is the weak link, weak link in the chain you know that's what you call dyslexia it sounds like you never had an issue with that it sounds like you could read fluently but nonetheless failed to comprehend what you had just read. Mm -hmm. And um, that you sometimes see in like attention deficit disorder. But 
I think sometimes it probably can be primary. I mean, people are complicated enough that, you know, plausibly, I think you could see that. Um, uh, and, and so you find that you have to almost kind of re-auditorize it. So you, know, you, have, you, have, you have to read it out loud. Um, and then your comprehension improves, which, by the way, for me, that's almost exactly uh, the case with me as well that I don't do well reading um, uh, silently. Um, and uh, I mean, it's kind of an interesting question to what extent your, shall we say, brain voice is audible while you read. I think to the extent that it is, it's also an interesting question if you're a man, whether that voice sounds like yours or not. For, for, for me, for whatever reason, that brain voice is still prepubescent. It doesn't sound uh, like my speaking voice. I don't know why that is. Yeah, that's weird. But but um, <laughs> the uh, the thing about that is, you know, I was told by one of my teachers, a very brilliant guy, he said that to the extent that you're hearing that voice, you're not understanding, and that your true reading fluency is facil or your true reading comprehension and speed are facilitated by almost a kind of sight reading. Um, and uh, you, you told me to take a pen and move the pen across the page kind of in an S. Just train the eyes to look at the text without decoding, without, without reading in that phonological way. Um, and uh, I, I don't think I ever had the discipline to really stick with that advice, learn how to speed read. Um, I find myself doing that anyway sometimes when I'm reading in a different way, not the way that I would read the Bible. I mean, if I'm reading the Bible, I would read it like you. I want to hear the words, hear the intonations, hear, hear the resonances. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's, that's very fascinating. Um, I, find it, I find it interesting that your, your primary uh, literary diet is, is, is scripture. And, um, you know, I wish, I wish I could, I wish I knew how to read it so that I could read it more and sort of know what I was doing. Um, I find I don't know what I'm doing when I read scripture. I find I don't know how to interpret it. I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I, I feel the same way a lot, it's, but. And of late, my thoughts have really sort of taken the following turn. I have thought about the debates that people have over different issues. Let's just take the end times, for example. There's all these decision points, pre-trib, post-trib, like, like pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, this and that, so many things. And what, what, suppose some guy was right about it all. You know, he had this super specific position and the end times happened next week and they exactly conformed to what he said would happen. Would we be able to say that, that he was correct because he knew what he was doing? Or would it be the case that, would it be more analogous to his having won a game of bingo? That depends on how determinate was the method or the hermeneutic that he used to arrive at that position or interpretation and i find you know and like that's kind of like it's almost like poker or something you got to know when to hold them when to fold them you got to know when to literalize you got to know when to spiritualize you got to know when to preterize you got to know when to futurize you got to know 
when to interpret verse A in light of verse B or vice versa. Yeah. And you have to somehow know at each point in the decision tree which of these moves to make. And the higher order interpretive principles that you're using to make those calls themselves are judgment calls. And then like when you're at that level of abstraction, what higher order principles are you looking at to make those calls? And is it just that the voice of God spoke to you? If so, that's not like a very repeatable like like procedure you know like in terms of operationalization or it wouldn't seem to and if so like could anyone reasonably be expected to have made all the moves that this guy made you know this gets into like the, the perspicuity of, of of scripture which is where that most people have to look up but um you know it, it, so you know this is the stuff i found wrong when it comes to bible interpretation i have views that are somewhat eccentric um you know, one of the things I talk a lot about is universal salvation. It's not a position I hold dogmatically, but I hope it's true. But, mm. you know, most of the time, you're, the response you're greeted with when you tell people that you harbor sympathies um, uh, in, in that direction is, you know, this kind of like, well, you must be reading scripture wrong. You know, so like, what is the right way? I'm interested to know that. What is the right way to read scripture? Is it, a, you know, is like, let scripture interpret scripture. Is that in scripture? Hermeneutics 316? Like, as far as I know, it's not there. Yeah. You got one verse that talks about how everything in scripture is something, something like profitable for instruction and guidance and reproof and things like that. Doesn't exactly sound like scripture is this airtight, self-sufficient, self-interpreting, hermeneutical, perpetual motion machine that doesn't need any kind of input you know yeah like it's, you know it like they treat it like it's a closed system as far as i can see you, you can't do that anyway I'm, I'm there's a lot of thoughts i have on this i'm going off on a rant <laughs> no this is really off. interesting no i'm i'm definitely right with you i've i've come like through especially through reading the scripture i've come to kind of believe more in a universal salvation as well um and i have uh, my reasons for it and they're usually not uh the whole i usually don't grab at the the scriptures some people will grab at the scriptures this says all and they'll really like look at that one word all or anything it's usually more of like just a the collective I, I don't know what you'd call it the whole the whole thought of the entire bible seems to for me to get at that but as for like um the scripture though i used to when i i when i first started reading it i was very very black and white like this is what it says. It said this word, this has, it has to be this word. Like it can't be any other word. It was this intentional. Like it's really holding to like the just really, really fine point. And then, and then it was precept upon precept, but uh, cause I know some people that would be like, they quote that other scripture, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so they'll be like, well, you got to divide it. So this one's old Testament. So you can just chuck that one. And then this one's new. And I would encounter that a lot, but then I was like, well, precept must be on precept so then i went through and just i'm like i have to take all the scriptures like if i have this one here and this one says something else like i have to add them together but then that causes me to just like break apart my categories a lot of times because they are seemingly contradictory when you start doing that when you start to like, i mean there's one verse in deuteronomy where god says i i wound and i heal like i kill and i make alive and i'm like if i'm being really particular then those things are contradictory but they're side by side and i'm like well they can't be opposites and it's just 
something wrong with my thinking. And so now when I read it, I'm very, especially even when I've talked to my friends about like just the development of language and everything in general, and you're looking at all of that, I'm like, I really can't read it fine point. And so I don't, I mean, I don't really have answers on how to read it. I'm very interested in that question as well. I just basically, I guess, um, approach it and I try to read it all. Um, this point, I try to read it uh, symbolically, parabolically, and historically. Like I try to hold on to all of them because uh, the incarnation seems really important. Like I feel like it's in the, the physical resurrection and all that stuff. I'm like, I feel like I can't just toss that out and say it was symbolic or something. But at the same you're, time, I think it right. is symbolic. You're right. And we, exactly. So like Jesus, he's the meeting point, say, of heaven and earth, God and man. The cross is a juncture, it's a union of mm -hmm. some kind. And it's also like the union of symbolism and literalism or literality. Like if it represents something, it, it almost represents literality itself, which is a paradox where it's like in order for it to be even more representative of what it is, it has to become actual and, and literal and embodied. Yeah, I think yeah. On, these, on these lines, I think a little bit about um, what is his name? St. Anselm of Canterbury who talked about being than which none greater can be conceived. And that, you know, uh, if, if it exists in your mind, uh, you know, that's, that's some kind of existence, but it's not as great an existence as it would have if it existed also, uh, also outside your mind. So therefore through some dubious bootstrapping logical argument thing, it has to exist outside your mind. Um, even though there's probably, at least like a dozen problems with that that argument yeah. but but it's sort of um uh that, that's kind of what i think of when i think of jesus and in terms of the importance of the physical resurrection um now although you know his 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 resurrected body can do strange things that seem to break the laws of physics so let's keep that in mind um yeah. but you know, what you were saying earlier in terms of rightly dividing the word of scripture, I founder on that because it seems to me, and this is a problem that happens in any proof and any argument, something like something like Zeno's paradox of motion that gets bogged down in infinite subdivision of some continuum. So what it's like, that? I'm not sure what that is. Sorry. So he said, he said, look, you got a really slow tortoise and you got a really fast Achilles, but somehow Achilles can't pass this tortoise says, to pass the tortoise, he has to first get halfway there. But before he can get halfway there, he has to get halfway to halfway there. He has to get a quarter of the way there. Before that, he has to get an eighth of the way there. So somehow the magic is that because subdivision can occur an infinite, uh, theoretically infinite number of times, therefore actually Achilles can never pass the tortoise. Whereas you know if we're just watching the scene play out. You know there he goes. Um, so conceptually distance is an impossibility or, or change is an impossibility and the closure of distance but actually it just happens all the time um it's kind of like well i won't get into that but um <laughs> you can i'm trying to track with you i don't know well I, I i make too many lateral moves typically in conversation um but um so what i'm saying is it's like to say okay i i should take verse a and light i should interpret verse a in light of verse b just because verse b kind of sounds like it's talking about verse a in some way but how do i know that it is is there a verse that tells me that verse b is talking about verse a maybe there is maybe there isn't if 
right? You know, so if I go to this hypothetical verse C, you know, there's just there's a similar question again that arises. Like, how do I know that verse C is really talking about verse B, which is really talking about verse A? You know, it, it, if, if it was if it was truly self-interpreting in a way that was determinate, as opposed to in a way that could allow uh, a an almost infinite number of mutually exclusive interpretations, which is the actual world that we live in. Yeah. Um, uh, it would seem to require the book to possess an infinite number of verses, which it can't because it's a physical finite book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, that's a very kind of literal approach to, you know, there's the like open-ended and closed-ended questions. And there's people who, what they say, what they say, Divergent thinkers and convergent thinkers. So, so divergent thinkers think outside of the box. Convergent thinkers are like very literal and just very head on in the way they answer questions. Like what side of the ostrich has the most feathers? Divergent thinker says the outside. Convergent thinker is going to go to each little ostrich and, oh, not, they're not so little. You're going to go to each ostrich and count the feathers on every ostrich. And then statistically, you get a large enough sample of ostriches until they can tell you, well, for hormonal reasons, you know, having to do with the weird chiral associations that different hormones have in the body, perhaps the estrogen seems to be expressed more on the left side, testosterone on the right, who knows why. Um, you know, the, the left side of the ostrich has more plumage in certain seasons. And it, it's like, that's the, it, that's the way that I approach these things, which is like somehow too, it's too literal. But what's the right way? If you know, then teach me. I'm not saying you. I'm just saying. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm right with you. I don't know. I see. I I feel like it. Maybe it's it's both. Though I don't. I don't know. I really struggle with that as well because it seems like there's a utility for both to be very literal in particular and to because I feel like that's the way you understand is when you start refining your your vision and and everything. But then, yeah, I just keep going back to like that 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 eventually uh, has to break apart because it just keeps resolving. And like, uh, if you keep thinking that way, literally you keep condensing it down and then it doesn't. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, I don't even know the right way to put it into words. Um, I think I know what you're talking or, about. Or it's kind of like a process, like, okay, I've got the literal now. And then this literal almost has to, like, I guess maybe it's kind of like Peugeot talked about when I mean, he takes another leap of faith. Like now I have the literal, I can see this, but there's got to be a little bit more. So then this literal thing I've, I've conceived of in the scripture or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's got to make uh, this leap and, and it's got to be bigger on a larger scale. So I can see the outside more or see it from a different uh, perspective. Um so something like, like, like a criterion where the correct interpretation is known because of the harmonies that exist at different levels of yeah like yeah yeah scale yeah so like uh, one thing I was thinking about earlier when we were talking and I said like I think it's historical and parabolic and then I think it just keeps leaping is uh, like Lazarus story like um, there's uh, what in Luke it's like I've always heard it presented as a parable like there's this Lazarus and he's in Abraham's bosom and the rich man is in like the torments of Hades but then you actually read uh what is the gospel of John and it's like it's the the same story with a real literal Lazarus it's like there's a literal Lazarus that I I've heard of um had well he died in the story and I've heard he died from um 
leprosy, like he was part of a leper colony. I don't know if that's true. So then he would have been suffering with sores, like the parable in Luke. And then he goes down to Abraham's bosom. And then uh, in the parable, um, the rich man says, send back Lazarus from the dead, blah, blah, blah. You know, and he's like, they wouldn't believe if I did raise him from the dead. And then he actually raises Lazarus from the dead and they still don't believe. So it's just weird because there's like this literal story in the gospel of John with the parabolic story in the gospel of Luke. But then you could even like, I don't know, it seems to like even like scale up on where you could look at Lazarus as a collective body of people or something as well. Like, a, I mean, and that could scale up even more. And so like, I feel like once I have the literal story of Lazarus, well, then it kind of breaks apart and it's parabolic or symbolic, then it applies to more areas, you know? Does that make sense at all what I'm trying to say, I guess? Where I feel like it's, it's almost like a, a cycle of both. I'll get the literal interpretation, the historical, and then I'm like, wait, it's it's more. It has to be more. And then, it, like you're talking about, you see it repeat in a pattern, which just confirms it more and more. Well, I think that's super interesting because I I never even I never even connected the fact that that yeah, it's the rich man and Lazarus, which I guess is a story in in Luke and maybe another one of the Synoptic Gospels. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I know it's at least in Luke. Yeah, um, I think I think it's. Lazarus is raised in, in John. And uh, and like you said, when he's raised, they still don't believe, which is interesting. Yeah. Um and uh so no, I hadn't even I hadn't even um connected that. Um and probably because my my tendency with scripture is still to come at it from something like a modernist frame where I'm looking for some way that all these events can have been realized uh, in the space-time continuum or something yeah. and that there's no there's no contradictions or inconsistencies in the accounts or reports of these events um and uh, and if there are then there are problems for example jesus seems to speak as though he was returning in the lifetime of his listeners he didn't do that what the hell jesus um, <laughs> um you know but, but like no like i take that seriously yeah and, and i expect people who who read the new testament in a, in a way that pays very close literal attention to jesus words to have an explanation for that and if they don't i would expect a more symbolic interpretation of jesus words throughout the new testament especially as regards the eschaton and the age to come um to be um advisable I would I would think that if your if your literal hermeneutic doesn't work with every verse, you shouldn't necessarily think about bring about, about about applying a literal hermeneutic in every case, or or you shouldn't think that the application of a more literal uh, hermeneutic is more is necessarily more faithful. Um, but then again, what is what is what is the right way? Yeah, you know, because of the New Testament, kind of what it seems to me, if you read it faithfully, it almost seems like it's talking about something sort of Jehovah's Witness, uh, uh, like something like what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. It's almost like talking about soul sleep and annihilation. Of course, Revelation does seem most clearly to talk about eternal torment going, you know, like like eternal conscious torment, but it's the most symbolic book in the whole new testament and they say you know make be sure to interpret 
what's unclear in light of what's clear. What, what verse told you that? I don't know. Um, uh, but it sounds reasonable. Yeah, other things sound reasonable too, though. Um, you know, I could come at it from seemingly any number of directions. Um, that's what I keep getting stuck on. But you see, I don't know. I'm almost like learning disabled or something. Like when I was, when I was a child, they said, righty, tighty, lefty, loosey. That didn't help me at all because the, 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 the lid goes right the top half and goes left on the bottom half. I never even thought about that. Well, it, it, yeah. so, so I think it's partly yeah. a, may partly be a failure to take others' perspective into account. Like, draw uh, the letter Q on your forehead, Jason. <laughs> okay, All right. you didn't take my perspective into account. You drew it. You drew it in such a way that. Wait a second. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> but see, I make the same mistake. Um, and uh, uh, there's different possible explanations for that, but I'm putting that forward as a possible explanation for, uh, you know, uh, like why I can't seem to get with the rest of it, the program, get on the same page as everybody else when it comes to the interpretation of this book. Yeah. Um, at least not with the evangelicals. Although, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, attract I'm attracted to the seriousness with which they take this book. Um, what's his name? His name is uh, Jerry Boschman. Um, uh, he's he's a he's a universalist type guy who just really takes the scriptures super seriously, and I like the, the very kind of literal and head-on way in which he um, answered um, the the annihilationist um, sort of uh, argument that it's something like. Um, You should fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. So it's like he's clearly talking about annihilation there, not, not purgatory. And Jerry Boschman says that, well, you know, it, it also says, I guess, in John, or the axe is, like, is, is close to the root of the tree and all that. And, and he said, well, you know, aren't we sons of Abraham? And it's like, he, he is able of these stones to raise up new children of Abraham. He said he's able, but doesn't mean that he necessarily did it. So that's, that's, that's Boschman's response. In other words, it says he can destroy both body and soul and get it doesn't mean he did. Yeah. Um, so in other words, there's this weird answering of scripture with scripture, but in a very kind of legalistic and narrow way yeah. that yeah. nonetheless appeals to me and which could only, the only, the only way someone would do that is if they just took it super seriously and had, had just spent tons of time sort of like you almost committing it to memory yeah just just you know rereading the same stuff over and over again yeah yeah i like that i like that interpretation i don't know yeah that's pretty good um yeah i i don't it's it's hard for me it's weird too because like sometimes when i try to remember it i feel like i can't but um you were mentioning earlier too about drawing with an s while you're reading and maybe that's something that's been helpful for me too like i will constantly be writing or highlighting or something um but sorry, I'm getting a little bit off track here, but that's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I kind of maybe, I think I might maybe do kind of something similar, the same thing. Like I'll, I'll look at one part and I'll, I won't, I don't throw anything out in the scripture. So I'm like, I have this, and then how does this coincide with this part? And I think that's why some things people believe, and I don't, I don't know every branch of Christianity, what they all believe, like evangelicals or anything. But I don't think I'm, I'm definitely not even necessarily aligned with what I was brought up 
brought up bringing um i mean brought up to believe or anything um but uh yeah the reason um i don't know that i get that particular but it seems to be my main reasons for the universalism uh thing i've come to believe is uh this the part in ezekiel um it's kind of obscure coupled with romans 11 where it's basically just talking about like he, bas he basically flat and jesus even says the same thing so there's that part as well but he basically says that sodom and gomorrah will be justified through uh israel's sin because that he's basically like you know better um and you're doing worse than they are so mm -hmm. in the judgment day they're going to be justified over you and so i'm like and then you couple that with the Romans thing and it's like, God wants to have mercy on all. And it's like through the mercy sown you, like if he's able to save the uttermost, then what do you think is going to happen to those people who like you knew better and you still did worse um, and he's going to save you. So that's kind of what leads me, but it is all kind of the same way, scripture upon scripture upon scripture that I, I guess I've added it together over the years. That's, that's, that's right. Um, and um, I don't know why, I guess it's a temptation that I don't, I don't necessarily share with other people. I don't think you have it, but it's like when you, when you have this interpretation that is scripture upon scripture, there's like in some people, there seems to be this overwhelming temptation to just see this as the view of scripture that is necessitated by the, by the text when you let it speak for itself. And um, they don't see how anyone could possibly hold any other view. And, and, you know, I don't, I, my problem is almost the opposite. It's like, I don't, I don't know how this view is necessitated. I don't know how I couldn't go off in any other, in any number of other ways and spin any number of different uh, interpretations. And it seems to me that in order to be constrained, uh, you know, in, in this, in this arena of infinite freedom, I need some kind of you know, I, I need a hermeneutic that doesn't come from the text itself, or not only. God is love is in the text. But I think that if you view the world as the word of God, God is love is the same hermeneutic that, that applies, applies to the world considered as, as the word of God. And that's sort of like, for example, what, let you, what lets you know that Jesus is the son of God. Before, I used to wonder how it was that even what it meant for Jesus to be the son of God and still do. But, but you know, how is it that he can strut around and expect people to, to just understand that he's yeah. the son of God? And I think it has to do with kind of like, like ultimate reality and sort of if there's, if there's an ethic associated with ultimate reality, it depends on the nature of ultimate reality. So if, if God were not love, but rather war, then Genghis Khan would be his son. The way to mm -hmm. orient yourself in this environment or the environment of environments of, you know, not just this reality, but ultimate reality, that would be uh, through the emulation of someone who was especially successful in war. Um, uh, Jesus, um, his morality only makes sense if God himself is love. Otherwise, you know, if God is something else like mammon, what Jesus does doesn't really make any sense because he's not going to get you rich. Yeah. Um, 
so I don't know. Um, you know, that those are those are thoughts that sort of come to come to my mind. But um, I guess I guess I don't know. Maybe I'll ask you what makes you think when you when you find when you find an interpretation that you like, what makes you think that it's true? What makes you like it? Oh man, uh, it's it's literally I think the same thing you just said. It's seeing it out in the world. I feel like that's uh, and when you're saying that, I think that's um, extremely important. I was kind of I was talking to my mom and my sister last night, and it was kind of something similar too. I was talking about because I mentioned the younger generations and stuff, and like kids in youth group having more questions and everything. And I was like, well, it's almost to the point now where I feel like I, you can't even. I mean, you can't necessarily even attempt to answer questions within the Bible anymore. Like it has to it has to correlate to reality in the world around you. Otherwise, it's just absurd. So it's like, if, if people don't count the scripture as truth at all, then they don't. So it's like, it's not in, it's not in their category. So I can't like quote scripture at someone and be like, see, this is what it says. But it's like, well, look around you. Like, like you're saying God is love. And that applies to your reality. <laughs> like, that's what, that's what, that's what holds your world together. Basically, is that idea of, of Christ is the I've had the same thoughts as you and it's like Christ, what makes him the son of God is that he's the, the perfect embodiment of, or the embodiment of perfect love basically is what, and that's in that perfect love is what actually holds the world together. And that's what actually makes the trees grow and everything else. And so, yeah, and it's kind of the same way I have to, I think, yeah, I, I could, I could go to the scripture and make up any doctrine I want. Like I could probably, Pull, dissect it pull different scriptures apart and start making cases for abortion or whatever else i want to if i want to because i could just find those scriptures in there uh like one in revelation jesus says i'll kill your children with death like i could pull that one in or something but it's like you, yeah and i have and, to uh, where where uh where god himself seems to take the life of david's son yeah punishment for david's son adultery that is that is heavy shit man <laughs> it really I, is where <laughs> yeah no i don't care yeah, yeah that's 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 horrible that's, yeah that's, yeah that, that is um uh yeah that, so I, I feel like the doctrine has to like you said correspond with the world around you you're actually you know. it has to, yeah well you know and, and and see when it comes to the old testament you're talking about these these verses where it says you know i'm the lord i do good i do evil deal with it I am not so sure that God has love. God as the unitive force that that holds reality together does evil as so much as he allows evil. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of my little hermeneutic uh, is is that, or my little principle is that is that God God is the author of life and the allower of death. His pattern is to create to allow death and then to resurrect, mm-hmm. to, to, to create or integrate, allow disintegration, and then repurpose that to a greater reintegration. Um, you know, that, such that you know, the devil competes against God, but God competes against no one. He has no competition. Yeah. You, can't, you can't do anything that won't further his plans. And, um, you know, you meant it, for for evil but he meant it for good it was already unfolded within his calculations from before the foundation of the world yeah Um, yeah and 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 um uh so this one 
this this is this is the holy one like he he is so far removed from evil like i heard somebody refute calvinism like this uh was, was a lady philosopher i don't remember her name she said calvinism says god is the author of sin but evil is precisely that which god does not intend therefore calvinism is false so it's a good simple little argument that 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 evil is 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 just the definition of what God is not and what He does not mean. Mm, yeah, He allows it. We might say for various reasons, primarily the freedom of His creatures, and really so that there can be anything at all. Because if there were, I don't know. I mean, yeah. this is my my. No, my, I'm right with you. I'm talking with you. My 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 in my heretical moods, which are <laughs> constant. Um, <laughs> yeah. I um. I uh, I think well you know it's like kind of like what C.S. Lewis said if every time I tried to stab someone my knife turned to jelly <laughs> and I couldn't even stub my toe without angels sort of flying down and restraining me this life would very quickly lose all meaning mm. and it's something like that the, the point is not that God prevents any suffering from taking place because without the negation of good or the complement of good there could not on analytical or Wittgensteinian grounds even be such a thing as good. Rather, God picks you up and dusts you off every time you fall. Yeah. And for every death promises a resurrection, mm-hmm. we, might, we might hope and we might imagine based on whom we imagine him to be. Um, who we imagine him to be. Um, so I don't know. Um, I don't even know quite where I started with that or where I was going. Um, but I wanted to tell you earlier, my motto while podcasting has been that when, you're, when your object is to understand the infinite, any, any starting place is as good as any other. Um, uh, so that's kind of been my guiding motto. It's like yeah. I lost the track where I was, but there wasn't a track. <laughs> don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I like that. I, I also heard, I brought it up to my friend Craig recently too. I, I think it was, it was, it might've been Luke Thompson. It was one of, one of the guys in the circle that said, or maybe yeah, it was on the grill country. Yeah. But it, it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that was basically the thing was, they okay. said like, when you're trying to understand the infinite, every, every Christian is a heretic because you're immediately putting God in the category as soon as you're trying mm. to understand him, which you have to do to relate sure. to him. So, sure. but then, yeah, oh, it, like, so any starting point, like you said, is good, but it's probably. <laughs> Where I was going was to say that I don't think that God stretches out his hand to knock the Babel Tower over. I think the yeah. Babel Tower, by its nature, has to fall of its own weight. Now, of course, that's not what it says in Genesis. It says in Genesis, he stretched out his hand. But that's my hermeneutic when I read the Old Testament. It says God did this evil thing. I think he allowed it. In the New Testament, it says, God is, God is love. God is the father of lights um, in whom there is no variableness, no shadow of turning. In other words, he's, he's like pure light. And um, when the time comes for your punishment, that is, you are handed over to the accuser. Not even so much handed over as, as the protective grace is retracted and the accuser grabs you and then makes you suffer the punishment for a sin really of which you would not repent, you know, like unforgivable sin following Thomas Talbot. I kind of look at that as the unforgivable sin is like when 
the judge could commute your sentence, but you won't plead guilty. You haven't even recognized him as a judge. The only, the only way you can be uh, released from the grip of this sin is you, you have to take the punishment that it inevitably brings along with it itself. Um, evil isn't evil just because God says it is. Evil is evil because it's evil. Yeah. Um, sort of a reverse euthyphro uh, uh, dilemma um, or, or, or question. Uh, it, the, yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll kind of stop myself here. <laughs> no, no. Going off in, 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 in various directions. No, I like everything but, you're saying. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, well, yeah, well you know, it, it's so, it's like, you need you need deliverance, but the one from who, the one to whom you would look for deliverance, you haven't recognized him as a deliverer. So you have to be punished. There's no other way. However, does that mean you're punished infinitely? I don't know if that's we necessarily have to assume that. People tell me, "Hey, look, if universalism is true, everything is meaningless." Say, like, well, geez, I you know I I don't believe sin is punished infinitely, but I don't know how that that makes everything meaningless. I think it's punished, just not infinitely. But I don't know. So that's I'm me not, being very literal again. I'm I'm right with you. I think. I mean, I don't think it's meaningless because it's like uh, he who sins loves much loves much. So like even through any free will God gave us, if we create any evil, ultimately the biggest sinner is going to be the one with the most love because he's had the most. You think love given to him? Do right? you think that's true? If that, they that, repent, that 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 sin is in proportion to love. No, I don't think it has to be, but I think uh, it's. Maybe, I would naively it, think it's the other way. I would say it's in. It's in. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's negatively associated um, with with love. Uh, I would I would think sin and love are inversely associated. Um, yeah, you, I know. I think I think so. Like what I guess what I'm getting at is, uh, to me, it seems like like you mentioned the unforgivable sin, and to me, mm -hmm. I I think what you said tracks right right along with the way I see it. Like I, I've often said the unforgivable sin is unforgiveness. And so it's kind of the same thing. It's just you're, you're un, you can't recognize your need for forgiveness. So you're kind of, you're arrogant. And then through that, you become resentful and you become Satan sort of because you're accusatory to other people because you won't, if you're self-righteous, you won't forgive other people. And so you're refusing to allow yourself to be forgiven. And then you'll also condemn others. And so it's this re rejection of forgiveness. <laughs> That, uh, but then it's like when you, even if you have never sinned, just it's this recognition, I think, of God's probably his forgiveness, his loving kindnesses, his mercy. All Because, I mean, he had to be merciful just to create you in a way. So it's like, I think it's the communion with those, to me, that um, that is like, and it's the recognition and communion with those that produces more life in in whatever the cosmos. Um, and so I think even if you aren't the biggest sinner, the, maybe the, the perception of your, my great need for his love and his mercy causes it to flow through me and back to other people like the mer mercy endures forever type thing. And it's just this continual repetition of, uh, Thank you. Like thankfulness for your mercy. Now I can give it to other ones because like, okay. if I look I at see. any, if I look at anybody yeah, yeah, in the yeah, world, yeah. Like I need to be the biggest sinner because if I yeah. look at 
if I look at someone else, I'm like, oh, they're a bigger sinner than me. And then I've cut off my forgiveness to them because I'm like, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah perfect. Yeah. Cause it's just, it's just like the, the parable or not even a parable, but well, yeah, it's, Jesus says, look, there was a, there was um, a, a creditor and, and he had two debtors, one of whom owed him a great deal and the other owed him very little. Yeah. And he, um, you know, he, he forgave the debts of both who, do, who, you know, who do you think was more grateful? Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I think that's what you're talking about. And so yeah. to be conscious of yourself uh-huh. as uh, someone who was forgiven a, a great, a great debt, an unpayable yeah. debt. And maybe is, it's a qualitative, qualitative way of looking at it or something like, like your debt could be a hundred million and mine could be two cents, but it's like, well, my, I still see mine as more or something, you know, I don't know the quality, like the girl lady threw two mites. It's like, this was all she had. Like, it's like, I, you know, my, my sin, I may have not committed technically or literally, or however you want to look at it, uh, uh, you know, quantitatively as many sins, but like, I see my, the quality of my sin. So grave, like literally I, it could just be, I knew better. This person didn't know better. Like this person didn't know to not murder and I knew, and I knew better than to murder. And so it's like, my sin is so much more grave because I knew. So it's like, I guess the quality of it is like, I. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about that. Um, because, uh, whoever, whoever dares to sort of, uh, teach or even speak about these things is um, he's basically setting himself up to be held to a higher standard. Whoever's in relationship with God, yeah, the sins that you, that you commit when you're in relationship with God are are more they're more serious than the sins that you committed before. And if you take someone who's just um, I don't know, uh, you know. T- take take anyone you know sec- secular who's who's sort of a byword for yeah. wrongdoing of a certain kind like Je- jeffrey epstein or something someone um you know you can say well you know that say maybe like socrates that that evil is only done out of ignorance and so this this person is is um you know yeah they they they've committed a multitude of sins but there's some way still in which they haven't given the advantages that perhaps i have i mean calvinists in their way are sort of more aware of that um yeah <laughs> um I, I i think that i think that's interesting um uh there's this little german roach who's trying to crawl over my stuff <laughs> and now my yeah. attention is divided yeah that's fine uh, but, That's why um, I, I think I think even with universalism too, I don't. I personally, I just don't see how that, even taking scripture upon scripture, I don't see how that ends in a, um, that mercy or God's forgiveness ends in immediate afterlife. Because even in the story of Jesus, it says what I think in Second Peter, he went and preached Christ to the spirits in prison, or something like that. There's some weird verse where it's like Jesus went to the preach to the the spirits. The people that were back in the days of noah or something and he went and yeah. so i'm like he took it into the afterlife and took the gospel there so i'm like i don't see why that would um yeah yeah just stop now well i mean the calvinist interpretation of course being that he came there to do a victory lap um oh, okay. 
you know, proclaim oh, okay. the gospel, meaning rub it in their faces oh, that, man. you know, sin had not managed to triumph over him and that he was alive nevertheless, but they weren't oh, parenthetically. Um, yeah, yeah well, <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Like, you can interpret it any, any number that's true. of ways. Yeah, I got this image in my head of him like in a chariot, like Asterix and Obelix, kind of a comic or something. <laughs> well, see, I, I tell you, you know, the, the 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 verse that people always bring up is Matthew 25, 40 something. Yeah. He's gonna say to the to, to the he's gonna, you know, gather in the sheep with his right hand and with his left, he's gonna push the goats away and tell them, you know, depart from me. Um uh and you know, the, the sheep will go on to eternal life and the goats to eternal punishment. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, it's like, does, does that word mean eternal? I mean, not consistently. It's, it's Ionios. It means of the age. So if you were to always translate age as eternity, then you just get weird stuff. Like, not till the end of this eternity will you see whatever. It's like, yeah, it was like, what? It's like... Um, <laughs> So, I mean, that's the first question, whether it should be interpreted as eternal. Well, yeah. probably not. But they say, look, the life of the sheep is eternal. Therefore, the punishment of the goats is also eternal. So it doesn't always mean eternal, but in this context, it must, because you're using the same word of the same two yeah. groups of people in the same verse. I don't know if you want to live or die. I don't want if you want to, I don't know if someone wants to live and die by that hermeneutic slash sword because if you go over to first corinthians 15 22 it says as an adam all died so in christ all will be made alive mm. it's like does it really mean all all yeah no, i mean if if it means this if quantifiers you know sort of mean the same thing because they're using the same verse of you know two different groups of people you know over in matthew 25 40 or so like i don't see why we shouldn't hold to that rule and First, first Corinthians 15, 22, it's, it's, um, you know, then, then we just straight up have a contradiction. Now, here's the thing. All doesn't always mean all. The other thing is forever doesn't always mean forever. I don't know if, you know, if you're a sufficiently astute reader of the Bible, you'll have yeah. caught that. The smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah rise up forever and ever. And yeah. yet also they're going to be justified or whatever. It yeah. seems to talk that way. And in any case, I don't see any smoke rising up from there now, but maybe yeah, I don't well, have a strong enough telescope, but yeah, yeah. The, but the, no, the, I, the weird part like that gets to me is where like if I if I read it literally, it's not. And if I almost read it symbolically, I don't know if it is. And the word I keep going to that works for me is like if I read it poetically, it seems to be still rising forever and ever. Because we're mm. still all like, then it's like, then it seems to speak on like this weird, this weird other level where it's like, yeah, it literally happened. And it's, it's the smoke is still going up forever and ever because we're still seeing it somehow in the story. And then we still actually see it play out in little ways and large ways in reality. Like uh, my friend Craig, it was, it was a while back. It was really enlightening for me when he, cause I, we were talking about something in scripture and talking about the fire falling from heaven and stuff and like they did on Sodom and Gomorrah and it was right when all those riots were going on in the U.S. and everybody was throwing a fit and he was like he's like look around you he's like that's what's happening right now and I was like oh it's just it's just the self-exaltation of man bringing down his tyrannical power and that's when it actually manifests in fire falling and I was like okay so it is actually happening so it's weird like as soon as I start to take try to 
look at it poetically, it seems like I start seeing it all over. And I'm like, oh, it is actually really happening right now. It's very strange, but. No, I think, I think that sounds right. And I think that where the poetic interpretation sounds like eternal damnation, we should take that seriously. You know, I don't know any other way to read Revelation. Well, actually I do, but, but, you know, when I, when I read it, mind you, I don't know how poetically I'm reading it, but, you know, when I read Revelation, I see that as a book about an eternal parting of ways between the sinners and the saved. Um, and um, there also seems to be a book of life in the book of Revelation. And the point of that book seems to be that, you know, since the foundation of the world, some names have been written in that book and some have not. You can debate over whether uh, the names having been written in the book is the cause of, you know, uh, the people's uh, salvation, uh, you know, over in the end times, or if that's just, you know, something that was foreseen rather than predestined, right? can debate over that but at any rate the point of the book would seem to be that some names are in it some are not and um uh if you could add in a name to the book of life at any time what would be the purpose of the book um and and uh so you know that that is that's that's pretty significant and i don't know of any good universalist way of making sense of the the book of life wait what do you uh, mean when, uh well i i just mean that um throughout throughout the book of revelation references this book yeah, the book yeah. Of life. but adding and, a name in would kind of negate well, the, the necessity of the book or something well it never talks anywhere about names being added to the book of yeah. life and, and the idea is that up in heaven this is already you know kind of we're just kind of deterministically working something out that's already been foreseen um and you know you can't you cannot act in a way that contradicts the prescience or foresight of heaven you know to 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 say to say yeah. so or to assume so would be to uh you know contradict the idea of god's omniscience right yeah, yeah. and and so um the the point is your name's either in the book or it isn't because, you know, if all names were in the book, or if no names were in the book, there wouldn't be the point of a book. Um, you know, this is a sort of selective, this is a sort of selective um, accumulation and presentation of information, sort of the idea of a book, screen certain things out. Um, well, anyway, I'm going yeah, to have to chew on this a lot, because I'm like, this is no, fascinating. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm just weird. I don't even know if other people like if this even like matters to them. But but, uh, you know, the book of life, you know, I, I take it I take it pretty seriously. But also I find that when I take it most seriously, I sound the most like the older brother in the, the parable of the prodigal son. Well, it's like, dad, you know, if you let him do this, it's like, then what was the point of me having done this and that? And it's like, what? It's like I, I killed the fatted calf for him because this my son was dead and now he's alive. Did he just add his name to the book of life? I don't know. Sounds like it. But that would be yeah. more of a poetic um, yeah. interpretation, for sure. Mm -hmm. And one, yeah, and one that allows a certain, that doesn't treat each book as hermetically sealed off from each other. But, you know, I'm pretty sure everyone, you know, likes, likes to allow a certain kind of 
you know, cross pollination between all the, all the plates. Yeah. So, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I'll have to think about that more. I, mean, I haven't thought too much about the, the book of life. My, my immediate thought would be that everybody's written in it because everybody was given a breath of life. So I'm like, I feel like at some point you had, were given life. So you'd be in the book, but then I don't know, but then you can be blotted out. And then I was thinking, yeah, like you mentioned resurrection. Sounds like you're getting just, just jotting your name back in or something. But also well, my, think- my own thought is, is that basically determinism is, is not the case. The determinism is a kind of illusion. Um, and th- in any case, if we, we are creatures in the image of God, we can't be like clockwork machines and probably nothing is. But, you know, the whole determinism, indeterminism, free will, determinism debate is, is extremely confusing and hard to understand. Um, and like, like the, the, does determinism mean like prede- the predestination idea? Is that kind of the same thing? Yes. Like a, okay. Yeah. 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 I don't know. My always thought, my thought always with that was just like that. Um, God, I thought there was even a verse for it too. Um, we're all predestined to be in his image. Like kind of like you're talking about, like he, like we're all, I don't know. My thought always, always just like in the movies, like you can deny your destiny. Like you might be destined to be, that's just what kind of what I always go to. I'm like, oh yeah, I was destined to be king, but then I was the prodigal son and ran off. Well, I don't think even the most (laughs) hardcore Calvinist will deny that, that everyone is in the image of God. Yeah. But I think that what might be denied is, I mean, a, that it matters to God, or B, that, that the, the image of God is, is indestructible. They might say, you know, it, it can be destroyed, or that it indeed was yeah. uh, as a consequence of the fall. Uh, the image of God in us has somehow been irreparably or unrecognizably shattered. Yeah. That may have been true for Adam, but it's not really true for you or me, that we, we are, uh, you know, even the light that's in us is dark you could say you know on the sort of reformed view and um i you know for what it's worth i think there's a sense in which that is correct and there's also another sense in which you know there is there is an original goodness um you know in each person and and certainly without that assumption the old testament is kind of hard to understand because you know it's always like am i not righteous oh god you know if i, if I read that as a, like a you know good reformed protestant christian 2000 years later like no you're not you're not righteous there's not righteous there's no one is righteous yeah. not not anyone so yeah, like, what yeah. are you saying you know like i'm so righteous and justified no you aren't nobody yeah. is you're not sounding like job anymore you're sounding like you know one of job's um, uh accusers and um so you know that being said you know i already admitted i don't take everything in the old testament at face value um, I'm reading selectively and <laughs> coming in with some kind of hermeneutic or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it's not one that I've been able to found exclusively from, you know, I've not, it's not, it's not a hermeneutic that I've been able to base exclusively upon the context of, of, of that same text. Right. It's just not, that's not a, that's not a loop I've ever managed to successfully close. Uh, the let scripture interpret scripture loop yeah um, at least where that makes scripture a closed system 
Hmm. Um, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Hmm. But um, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm probably repeating myself in certain ways at this point, going in, <laughs> going in loops. No, I really, I mean, I, I, I don't know. All this stuff's fascinating to me. I'm still, I mean, that makes sense. I, uh, I'm trying to think about that. If, uh, I don't know about the scripture interpreting scripture, then it comes into a closed loop. I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't really actually thought about that too much. My mind's still well, kind of wandering I mean, over to the book of life thing too. I'm really? Like, oh, I just, friends. I just can't make sense of the idea of, of treating scripture as a closed system. You, you're going to know it with reference to what is outside it. Yeah. And then, yeah. and the literal interpretation is something like an uninterpreted interpretation. Really? That's like an oxymoron. Um, I'm here. Uh, yeah. quoting either Christopher Langan or um, Kurt Jaimungle. One of them said it um, in a YouTube interview. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that seems right to me. Um, it's kind of like, it's kind of like in philosophy, they used to debate what has primary reality, uh, the universal or the particular, um, the pattern or the instance. And, you know, the nominalists said that, uh, patterns aren't anything over and above their instantiations in the real world that is to say all there really are, are concrete objects yeah and you know the the former premise at least that that patterns aren't really anything over and above their instantiations i kind of agree with but see if you were to take the take the instances and the particulars and ask whether they were anything under and below the patterns that they instantiate i would also say no so in, in other words in a, there was a guy named dun scotus he talked about hexity or the thisness of a thing so the idea that like in addition to instantiating all the general patterns that a, a thing does it has a sort of essential thisness but if you asked him to spell out what that was i don't know if he could ever really tell you it seems to me that even the most sort of rigorous criterion of numerical identity whether an object is the particular object that it is you know whether this mug is this particular mug as opposed to some other mug you know is is a question largely of uh, what shares the, the unique spatio-temporal history that this mug has no two things can be in the same place at the same time with this mug there's a unique history where at every time and in the past is this mug and only this mug has been at a certain location in space. And yet I see that, that that's, not, that's not due to its possession of some unique hexiety or thisness. That is, that is a kind of filtration of, of abstract patterns where it's like the set of things that um, existed, you know, that have existed at that place united with the set of things that um, you know, have existed at a particular time. And, you, you know, take the, when you take like the union of the things that have existed at this place at this time, et cetera, then you end up with this mug, but it's still, that's still a function of, um, of its instantiating abstract properties. So anyway, that's not, that it's probably neat, you know, needlessly abstract, but I'm kind of addicted to philosophy. Yeah. So, you know, I my think story I'm is obviously, I think I'm tracking with you. Yeah. I remember like the first, I think the first video I watched of you, I was just like, I have no idea what this guy's saying. And then That's I was probably like, because I had no idea what he was saying. <laughs> well, I hope. But not, like now but... I, now I'm like, I feel like I can kind of keep up. Yeah. Now I think I know what you're saying about the mug and everything. Yeah.
Yeah, well, you know, um, I was raised Hare Krishna. That's why I have an unusual name. My name is Kalia, or Kalia, Kalia Krishna. But um, even my parents mispronounce it, which on some level, your parents can't really mispronounce your name. They're the ones who decide your name. Yeah. Um, so, but, um, uh, and uh, I, was, I was a believer, basically fundamentalist Hare Krishna religion until I was about 16 years old, at which point I became sort of a Dawkins tier new atheist. Okay. Um, not, um, I mean, I, I, I was sort of reluctant um, to do that, but I felt like, well, you know, basically the sort of fundamentalist foundations of my religion, you know, ran head on into a kind of equally fundamentalist sort of scientific uh, worldview that, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's like scientific materialism. And, you know, just, just the way that I believe in scripture and religion was, was just as the sort of antithesis to this kind of, you know, materialist worldview. And, you know, so for example, I thought that if, um, uh, if it happens that life evolved, you know, uh, through evolution by natural selection, that means it can't have been created by God because in whatever scripture you care to name, when it says God created life, it says he did it like this, as opposed to, you know, through mm -hmm. evolution. Yeah. Which nobody knew about when those scriptures were authored. And so that's the kind of believer that I was. Yeah. And then, you know, my encounter with science uh, disabused me of that uh, <laughs> religiosity pretty quick. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, and then I was an atheist for a long time. Probably, I, I don't know how old you are. I'm 32. I'm 34. So. Okay. You look younger than I am. You look a lot younger. <laughs> I thought that you were, well, earlier I thought this kid was like 22. Like, just, <laughs> thanks. He's thanks, just man. a, he's just, wow. a He's just a youngling, <laughs> um, um, but uh, yeah. So um, it was around when I was twenty-eight that I was just finding finding religion compelling on existential grounds, sort of in that Jordan Peterson way. Mm -hmm. I don't know what your politics are like. I know that he's not. I know that he's persona non grata in a lot of you know. I like Jordan Peterson. Circles. I'm, I'm alright. Yeah, I like, good. I still like Jordan Peterson. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, well, I'm kind of, I kind of lost patience for his, his sort of neoliberalism. Um, and like his, 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 you know. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. His, when he, his, 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 when he gets into like religion and philosophy is usually when like my ears prick up more, but yeah. 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 Him. Well, you know, in other words, all this neoliberal individualism, capitalism stuff, I think we're done with it. And I think, yeah. We need to know. Um, uh, uh, my friends like to, yeah, Luke Thompson and, and friends in Nate Heil, these, these guys, they like to talk about personalism as opposed to individualism. And I, you know, I think they're onto something. Um, but um, yeah, so you know, I was I was I got kind of caught up in the Jordan Peterson wave, and um, but see, my friend Nate Heil says that that in a way Peterson's Peterson has been overtaken by his students, um, in, in like the present zeitgeist, and I I think that's I think that's right. I think something like that happened. 
Well, mm-hmm. Pajot was always out there being Pajot. Yeah. And I think he's been evolving a little bit. Well, even to an extent of, of taking universalism seriously, you know, like he, he finds he finds that all shall be saved uh, by David Bentley Hart to be a compelling book, which how couldn't you if you're intellectually honest, which shows that yeah. he is intellectually honest. But in, in some way, he was like, Pajot was already so advanced that he hasn't really had the need to, I don't know, evolve that much more or that much faster. Jordan Peterson has kind of stalled out at this mm-hmm. level of, I don't know. Yeah. Um. Uh. Anyway, so you know, Peterson that was there, but then also for me, psychedelics were like Im- important. You know, not as not as a constant habit, but you know, as a as as sort of a, a one off event to to reset my my sensibilities and open my mind to you know some metaphysic that was different than yeah. materialism that that had always been my uh you know been my my worldview even while i was you know taking jordan peterson and c.s lewis seriously i was wondering questions like you know where in the space-time continuum is jesus now it's like it's you know whereas when you take psychedelics or something it's like you can you can you can let go of all that you know there's there's a disintegration of some um Mm -hmm. unsatisfactory structure that it you know it, it, which which allows for a, a more fruitful reintegration to happen that is sort of more i don't know you might say idealistic it's more to do with um with with mind and the way that that is like a kind of crucial ingredient of reality um uh psychedelics yeah psychedelics will, will give that to you but sort of going back to what i said earlier regarding the distinction between sins committed early in one's relationship with God and, and later on, it's sort of like, I think God can give you a pass. I don't, I don't think you should use psychedelics if you're seriously, you know, in a conscious, like explicit everyday relationship with God where, you know, you're reading the Bible and taking it seriously. I don't think at that point, psychedelics are appropriate anymore. The yeah. scripture that comes to mind is, is there, is it because there is no God in Israel that you have gone <laughs> seeking a word from Baal? So oh, if yeah. you want to answer this question, ask him, is yeah. he the living God or not? Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe that's wrong. I mean, that, that, that's, that's kind of how I see it, but I've been talking a lot. I've been talking the blue. Oh, I'm, so I'm really interested. I'm really interested in your story too, and your background and everything. Uh, and I remember you said before you're, um, I heard you have heard you say before that you used to be Hari Krishna and I'm not super. Yeah familiar even with all of that necessarily um i know that that is a branch off hinduism right for is sure it, or, or is it is it strictly hinduism or is it just a branch like a, is, does it differ or so the way that it so the answer to your to your either or is yes yeah okay and and, and, and the way that it differs is by being a more specific version of it okay so so hinduism is kind of an umbrella term and Hare Krishna is really, it's, it's really not representative of the rest of Hinduism because it's actually monotheistic or at least uh, okay. monolatristic or henotheistic. It's acknowledging a pantheon of multiple gods, but assigning primary reverence to only one and really okay. regarding only one deity as ultimate reality and everything else as sub-ultimate and finite in power. Um, so it's really relegating all the rest of the gods 
to the status of angels or something like that. Yeah. They're powerful, but only because the, the infinite God gives them power. So um, basically, Hare Krishna is more, more properly known as Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And I think Vaishnavism means that they're, they're understanding Vishnu to be that, that personification or that, that embodiment of, of ultimate reality. And, you know, an infinite God uh, uh, who is singular uh, by, by nature and, and, and who has no rival or peer within the pantheon of, of lesser gods. So and, is Vishnu kind of like a Christ-like figure or a son of God figure? Not Christ-like, I guess, but son of, is he kind of like, because you said he's the embodiment of the infinite. Is that, is that kind of what they're attempting to get at or something? The answer is that, you know, in somewhat psychedelic terms, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's really a blue guy. Yeah. Who reclines on a, a coiled up, multi-headed cobra so like the coils of the cobra are his bed okay and then the head of the cobra has many hood it's a, it's a polycephalic cobra it's a cobra with many you see those mutations in the wild sometimes the snake with two heads well these people have a lot of imagination so they imagine the cobra with many 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 heads so it has its its head is you know it's very wide and it's like a kind of umbrella for heads you know um its upper body is very wide and it's kind of an umbrella and then there's vishnu reclining on it and on top of that is an ocean of milk um which is cosmic and somehow you know within each inhalation old universes are inhaled recycled destroyed and then with each exhalation a new creation is is a uh, created in this kind of cyclical cosmogony uh, cyclical uh, creation and destruction of worlds. Yeah. So, um, is he is he just a metaphor? I don't know. I mean, it kind of depends on, kind of depends on, you know, like, like in Judaism, Maimonides was like, "Hey, this is all a metaphor." And other people were like, "No, like this is how long God's beard is. Like, it's it's actually this long." It, yeah. It's kind. Of, I think the same spectrum of disagreement would exist. Mm-hmm. Um, Hare Krishna. Um, they believe that Krishna is Vishnu or even really that more originally Vishnu is Krishna. Um, They give the analogy of um, candles. If you have a a number of candles and they're all lit, each one is, you know, the flame of each candle is basically consubstantial with the flame of every other candle. It's the same kind of flame, just as hot, just as fiery in the case of each candle. But if there was one candle that had lit all the others, then it possesses a kind of originality that the others don't have, despite them all being sort of qualitatively the same. Yeah. So Krishna is likened, he's called the Supreme Personality of Godhead in Hare Krishna. And that, 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 that means that they're likening him to that candle that lit all the other candles. Yeah. So it's monotheistic Hinduism that that specifically worships Krishna, not really as an avatar of Vishnu, almost treating Vishnu as an avatar of Krishna. Um, and uh, so it's it's just just really extreme fanatical Krishnaism. 
Um, ah. Is Krishna a Christ-like figure in certain respects? Yes. During his earthly incarnation, for example, he washes the feet of his devotees. Wow. He also sort of denies himself in interesting ways, although in other ways he's sort of incapable of denying himself, marrying upwards of 16,000 beautiful women and yeah. sometimes um, lashing out in violence against people who you know, cause him offense, uh, only to be restrained by his, by his um, devotees. Uh, we always said devotees in Hare Krishna, but I looked it up once. The pronunciation is supposedly devotee, not devotee. Um, that's so, really fascinating but if I were talking with my you know, Hare Krishna friends I would be saying devotee because it just sounds weird to say devotee it really does yeah. uh, to me. Um, uh, and um, so yeah in some ways he looks like you know when I think of Krishna I think of that C.S. Lewis quotation where he says he wonders whether God using his secret influence in other places at other times would have used their the sort of the figments of their of their collective cultural consciousness to point to Jesus in various yeah. ways. Odin plucking out an eye and hanging it upside down for nine days or however long. Um, you know, different figures in different ways they they point Dude. to someone not just abstract. You know, not not just. Not a blue guy, but not just symbolically, man. yeah, not yeah. just symbolically rich on, on multiple levels, but also fully embodied and yeah, and literalized what, and realized. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because it even even his um devotees or whatever, or however you say the word, yeah, they them restraining him kind of reminded me a little bit of uh Moses in um where he he basically says, God's like, I'm gonna destroy these people, and he's like kind of stands in the gap and all the priests were supposed to kind of do that be mediators between God and, and man. And that's what Christ fully embodied by the forgiveness, forgive them Lord. They don't know what they do. Um, bridging that gap. Yeah. So it kind of, I don't know. It's fascinating because it, yeah, there are like hints and remnants of the Christ story that uh, you see all over and then they actually it, accumulate. It was called them good dreams. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Right, I like that. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that I think that Krishna is sort of a dream of Jesus. Yeah, um, that's the most sense that I can make of him because you know I I feel like Jesus is more ultimate than Krishna. He's more Krishna than Krishna to me. Yeah, and more um, relatable because he's and it's, well, know. also less relatable. Like in oh, other yeah. words, when Krishna goes off and wants to, so in the in the the battle of Kurukshetra and the, the Mahabharata, the Mahabharata is the story of a of a of a dynastic war okay between on the one hand the pandavas the sons of pandu and the karavas who are the sons of Dhritarashtra, the sons of kuru i guess i don't know why they're called karavas and um it's going to be a big blood feud and um within the mahabharata i mean the mahabharata is a long sprawling epic and this battle is is just the the climax of it and within this battle, there is the song of God, the Bhagavad Gita, that Robert Oppenheimer uh, quoted when he saw the uh, test trials of the nuclear bomb over in Arizona or wherever, or New Mexico. And he said, behold, is now I'm become death, the destroyer of worlds. Really, it says, I am become time. Time I am. Kalo asmi lokashaya krit. I am become time, the destroyer of worlds. Arjuna is... is He's trying to hold Krishna back. He's saying, don't let this war happen, or at least don't let me fight in it. Because if I win this kingdom, 
this is what the battle is about. It's the battle for the kingdom of uh, Bharat, India. Um, if I win this kingdom, it won't mean anything to me because I'll have, I'll, I will have had to kill all my flesh and blood relatives in order to win it. So if this, you know, if this is the cost of the prize, I have no interest. And I said, behold, Arjuna, all these, all these you know, yeah. friends and relatives and, and kings and princes are already dead. And then he shows his, his universal form and, and the other army is swept up like a river. And they, he sees them enter the mouth of that universal form of God. And their heads are dashed against the teeth of that mouth, like people hitting their heads against you know, rocks in a river. He sees them pass through that mouth and, 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 and become destroyed. And um, so the point was, you have to become detached. I've pretty much killed all these people anyway. Um, and, and it's like, well, there's some kind of truth in that, but also like Arjuna was being Christ more than, more than Krishna was in that instance. In, in other words, like Arjuna is kind of the more, he's, he's, yeah. he's imaging the truer morality in that, in that case. And Arjuna is um, just to re recollect, make sure I'm talking, Arjuna was the one that says like, don't kill these, like don't let this war yeah, happen. Arjuna, then they'll Arjuna all be is, dead. One yeah. of, is one of the prince of the, yeah. one of the princes of the Pandavas. He's, he's just one of Krishna's devotees, you might say. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and that and, reminds uh, me, like that story in particular reminds me of like literally the Moses thing where Moses says, he God says, I'm going to destroy all these people. And Moses says, blot, if you're going to do that, then blot me out of your book. Like, right. cause then, yeah, it's right. reminds me of the same thing. And then that's when, I don't know. That's why I'm just always so struck by mercy. Cause I'm like, it's to me, I don't think Moses was speaking out of turn or, or I've heard, like I have a, a friend who thinks like that, that he might've like misspoke there or something. But to me, I'm like, I don't think you could be more accurate because you're basically saying like, if you're not a God of mercy, a God of love, then I, not only do I not want to be a part of your story, but I can't even see myself in it. Like if Moses was out of turn. Why did God agree? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, because yeah. He, he despairs and he, well, Moses seems to despair and he says, look, show me your ways. Just teach me your ways. And God mm -hmm. says, I'm just ever loving. I'm ever righteous, ever merciful, just more, more good than you can possibly conceive. But it's like, what it seems to say is, to imagine me as more righteous than I am is correct because I'm always more righteous than you can actually imagine. Yeah. Or to imagine yeah. me as more righteous than I seem to be is yeah. the correct move because in truth, I'm always more righteous than you could possibly imagine me to be. And so it's, 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 it's God is infinitely righteous. Like what? In other words, every infinity, if you ask me, is, is only potentially infinite. An actual infinity is a contradiction in terms. Yeah. He's like more righteous and always becoming ever more. He's, he's righteous and always becoming ever, he's maximally righteous, always becoming even more righteous somehow. But um, I, I brought up the, but I'm, I'm weird. I'm like this cult, this whole like process theology that, that is very different than the sort of classical theism that is popular for very understandable reasons, um, you know, among us neo-theists. Um um, but uh, I, was, I brought up the Battle of Kurukshetra because in it, um, there's there's a on, on the the Korva side, the bad guy side. There's a, a really righteous guy. His name is Bhishma, and Bhishma, oh, Krishna has taken an oath that he wouldn't fight in this war. He's sort of what the kids would call OP. He's he's overpowered, you know. It, although most people in the story don't really recognize that he's 
like God, capital G. Uh, but Ar Arjuna knows that. And um, uh, there's so many digressions I could go on in this story. But basically, Bhishma, Bhishma wants to die at Krishna's hands because he knows that will bring him instant liberation. Bhishma is pious enough to know who Krishna really is. Um, and um, so he sees a win-win a, a situation um, where Krishna has, has only agreed to take part in the battle um, to the extent of being Arjuna's chariot driver. Uh, so Krishna is in the, on the battlefield. He's driving Arjuna's chariot, but he's not fighting. And so Bhishma decides that if he targets Arjuna with enough ferocity, that either he'll kill Arjuna or he'll get Krishna to kill him, Bhishma. Um, and uh, he sees this as sort of a win-win situation. Um, and um, he, he cuts Arjuna's chariot to pieces with his arrows. They have sort of, they have like superhuman powers, basically, the way that these people, you know, wield their bows and, and sort of uh, invoke celestial weapons that, you know, on the History Channel, they'll describe it like, did they have nuclear bombs? Were they taught, you know, how to split the atom by aliens or like, you know, that kind of thing. And um, uh, Bhishma shoots Arjuna's chariot to pieces and Krishna's like, that's it, I'm pissed. Like he picks up a wheel of that chariot and he goes over to kill Bhishma. And, and Bhishma drops his bow with, with his palms upraised, his arms open, he welcomes death. Um, and Arjuna holds Krishna back. So... You know, in other words, yes, sometimes we have, we have Krishna's devotees, again, imaging God more fully than does Krishna. But Krishna is still like a pointer or an index toward this, this fuller representation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even what? I mean, to what extent does the Bible do full justice to, to Jesus? That's a question. I mean, that's not a question that would be uh, welcomed by everyone, you know, say on the Bridges of Meaning Discord server uh, or in our corner of the internet. But, yeah. you know, like like um, the New Testament uh, scholar Dale Martin said of um, Jesus in the Gospel of John that, that Jesus talks too much. Is that true? <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's like uh, it says in one of the Gospels that if if you took down everything he had said, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. This yeah. is kind of a nod to the fact that, look, this guy was so ultimate and awesome that actually nothing we say in this book can really do justice to him. That's how I yeah. interpret it. Yeah. Um, but. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I'm just, well, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about the story you told and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that well, last to comment raised, too is just. To have been raised Hare Krishna is really to have an entirely, well, it is to have a religious vocabulary wholly other than, you know, like the Christian uh, uh, vocabulary. Yeah, and it's and it's in a way to be bilingual. Although mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't I you know religiously speaking, and I don't actually know which religion I have more fluency in now. I'd like to think or hope that it's the Bible. Um. Uh, but you know, I 
I, I, I don't I don't really know. And it, and it being so attached to universalism, universalism, uh, perhaps I've done. Uh, in the end, I've I, I've I've done nothing um, um, except uh, I've done nothing but you know import the universalism of my previous worldview, um, you know, into my Christianity because Hare Krishnas are sort of universalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just uh, I don't know. I would because, like I said, with me personally, I did not grow up universalist, and and the probably the church I still go to, as far as I know, none of them are universalist. So I really, I couldn't get around it. Like I, I didn't willfully import it into my worldview, or like necessarily even want it. It was just so I wouldn't think it would. If if there is in a sense where it your universalism bleeds over from what you used to believe i would think that it would be accurate um because of just the nature of reality because so that with that church that you were part of were they unitarian universalists or something um i doubt it what is what is that i don't know of any wait you said they were all you they you said they were they said you said they were universalists. No, right? they're they're not. No, no, no. Oh, they're okay. Not. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm probably. Yeah. No. So sorry. I, I might have misspoke. I'm. I think I'm the only one. Like they're not. They're not. Like the church so is still. But 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 to me that raises the question. What, what I I don't. I'm sorry. Just please explain it again. Yeah. Oh no. I was I was just saying that that um because you said your universalism might have blood over from like previous beliefs. And I was oh, and saying, you're saying I was in your saying, case, you don't see where it can have come from because it's kind of idiosyncratic on your part. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it. I was saying, I was saying, like, if yours did bleed over from your previous beliefs, I think it's ac- an accurate belief that you've carried over right. because right. I personally wasn't raised on universalism. Right. And even oh, the church, see, yeah, the church I go to now still, they don't teach it at all. But through study of scripture and, like you said, scripture combined with how reality just even works, it's like I don't. I can't seem to get around universalism now, um, especially with with the scripture, which is what's well, to intriguing be, to, to me. To be a universalist is to be in the position of Moses restraining God. Or mm. who who says this? Is it Lot? Not Lot. It's not Lot. It's somebody else. Maybe it is. He says, "Lord, for the sake of fifty righteous people, will you spare the city? Far be it from the you know, will not the judge of all the earth do right?" Far yeah, it's Abraham. It punish mm-hmm. Abraham. Okay, yeah. so he says you know, far be it from you to punish the righteous along with the, the wicked. And God says, well, for the sake of 50, I'll spare the city. Yeah. But then it's like, Lord, if you'll spare the city for 50 sake, why not 40? Why not 30? Yeah. And, you know, he bargains God down. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I feel like as a universalist, you're sort of in that, that that's the position that you're in. And yeah. some would say that that's totally inappropriate. Yeah. And yeah, yeah a lot of people would characters be. themselves do. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's to me what I've run up into. Hold by on the one way, second. All, all this that I'm saying, I should add by way of clarification, that is something that I learned from. Um, I want to say his Matt, his name is Matthew Cortman, and he wrote a book called um, "Saying No to God," which also sounds oh, terrible, yeah. but but um, these are not these ideas are not original to me. Um, as far as noticing how. Um, Moses and Abraham, uh, the ways in which they speak to God and sort of defy him to be even more like himself yeah. than he appears to be. And that, that especially shows up in the Abraham-Isaac story, uh, by which I'm fascinated. But um, so I'm sorry. So um, um, I just I just wanted to I just wanted to clarify that. No, I think no, I think that's really good. Uh, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you. Yeah, I think so, too. It's really fascinating to me how they do that, too. It's like almost this uh, 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 in them doing that and uh, kind of, I don't know, it's it's this weird play with being the mediator. And it's like it allows God yes. to be to be truth and mercy still in one like they're not. Mm-hmm. And he and they're not contradictory. And it's like in that right. role, you see that over and over. And it's just I don't. I don't know how even in Christian beliefs, like any of them, when you if you actually go through the scripture and read the whole story, like you're talking about with Moses, like back then with Abraham, all the way up to the end. It's like, I don't understand. That seems like that's God. God's intention is to. To. uh, So in Exodus, he sits on the mercy seat like that's his throne, basically is a throne of mercy. And he says and he declares his name. I'm merciful. I'm loving like I'm long-suffering um but then he also says like you know I'll, I'll punish the sins and everything and so but it's like that throne of mercy is uh like that's what he wants to make man and so it's like man needs to be that throne. it's like it's like the mary image like mary's mary's holding the christ child and it's like mary is the throne of mercy she's a seat of mercy and it's like that's theosis that's uh what we're called to become is like a, a embodiment of mercy for the world which is like played out in in that martyr character or something it's like moses reaches the point of king he's leading all the people and then he becomes the martyr by saying no god here take me instead or take me with them and it's the same thing with christ like christ reaches that point of king and then becomes the martyr or something it's yeah it's weird i don't i don't think i fully understand it all but it seems like that's god's intent and why i say like i don't see how you get a i get around universalism because i'm reading scripture is because even in corinthians it talks about like don't you know you're going to judge the world to come don't you know that christians and the saints are gonna and i'm like it seems to me like those judgment seats are supposed to be seats of mercy because in revelation it says i saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them i saw your conversation with celeste mott um, yeah. which by the way is our conversation being recorded yeah it is okay yeah i, I sure just, hope so it says recording yeah. <laughs> yeah okay i was just double checking that um I saw your conversation with Celeste Mott, and, and so I gather that you are familiar with uh, George MacDonald mm-hmm. and how he wrote so um, convincingly uh, about, about well, you, I guess you would say the simplicity of God in, in, in terms of his, his uh, justice and his mercy uh, not being opposed to each other. I need, and his- I need to dig into that more. I've heard Sherry reference it, and I think when I first joined the Discord, I think it's it was the Luke- justice sermon. Yeah, Luke and Sherry sent me that, and I read through at least most of it. I might have read through the whole thing, but it was a few years ago now. But I need to read through it again. But that really well, stuck with me a lot. Yeah, the idea that God's mercy is altogether just and His justice altogether merciful—that there is no opposition yeah. um, between these two attributes. Yeah, um, and um, of course, you know, your substitutionary atonement theory and related um, atonement theories sort of speak of god as though there were some internal division within himself such that he must deny one aspect of his nature in order to do justice so to speak to the other um and that indeed even within the trinity there's a sort of enmity where the father and son are in disagreement you know um uh uh where jesus is almost you know stopping you know or restraining the vengeful hand of the father um but you know that that's 
that's obviously a little bit extreme, even, you know, most proponents of the penal su substitutionary theory won't see Jesus and God as you know, opposed to each other like that. But nonetheless, I mean, it sounds like God is, you know, super angry at humanity and, and feels compelled to punish them. And, and, and Jesus is the one, you know, uh, asking, you know, mediating, asking him to forgive them and, and um, you know, stepping, stepping into that, into that role, take me instead, father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Um, and, uh, but, you know, really, yeah. Jesus says, I am, I and the father are one. It has yeah. to be, and so, it has to be, it has to be that there's, there's no, there's no division mm -hmm. um, in the, in the will of the father concerning humanity. And indeed, that's what it, it says, I think in Corinthians, whether first or second, I don't remember that, that, you know, uh, it doesn't say God was pouring out his wrath on Jesus. It says when Jesus was, was on the cross, it, God, God was in him reconciling the world to himself. Yeah. Yeah. And that sounds that's, more like his his loving the world rather mm -hmm. than uh, yeah yeah you know. yeah because how do you that's like the it's oh god that's why this story just blows my mind like every time I I even uh like I just can't shake it is what I mean it just it keeps coming back because it's just it's it's so incredible that that actually happens that it's like yeah he's the perfect embodiment of truth and then what does that truth do it, it sacrifices itself so that it might reconcile the world. And it's like, that's what justice is, because justice uh, is bringing back into the, it's restorative. Yeah, it's reconciling of the world to himself. And so it's like that, that full embodiment of truth that has every right to condemn, like flips the truth on its head and decides to yeah. give itself yeah, yeah, for well, the world. Yeah, let, 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 let uh, him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is... It's strange because Jesus is the one that I, supposedly, you know, being without sin, the story goes like he's the only one that could have done that. I don't know. It's just that the verse when you were speaking that that one part where um, Pilate's speaking and he says uh, he asked Jesus what is truth, and then just doesn't say anything. And then he says Pilate turns around and he says I find no fault in this man, and I'm like, that's kind of always stood out to me. Like that's the truth. Like that's what's. The truth like when you actually discover truth you would look at your brother and say i find no fault in this man and it's like that's, that's to amazing. me i don't know why that yeah, that really stuck out to me when you were talking yeah i i, I can see that you're a very multi-dimensional thinker um i think that Thanks. you're someone who's well, yeah well in other words you're the kind of person you know sherry right mm -hmm, yeah you're like her and many others in our you know sort of community where is like you're you're well you you are um well equipped conceptually thanks see, i like, often don't the, feel like it so all the different like levels of symbolism or something in scripture i don't really read that way i'm 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 very much more i guess you would say left-brained you might almost say autistic um and uh you know, I read much more in the way that fundamentalists read. Um, but, you know, there's, there's another kind of fundamentalism I have, or linearity, um, you know, but in the realm of philosophy, which just, you know, sees or believes that 
if, if God were truly to punish his children endlessly, that would make him Molech, not, not God. He oh. gave his own children into the fire for the sake yeah. of something higher than himself, that, he, that he's powerless to... to um, uh, <laughs> That's yeah. good. That's, that's intense. I never thought of that before. Well, I, I wow. think someone else said that, not even, but I don't remember who. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, or like the philosopher David Lewis, you know, was, was really adamant that, that, you know, just as the followers of Hitler were evil, because even if they weren't, even if they weren't like really evil, nasty people individually, because of whom they served and, and whom they swore allegiance to, they were evil, you know, and, and, and if, you, if you have a God who would punish the finite sins of, you know, mere mortals infinitely, you have someone infinitely more evil than Hitler. And to worship him and give reverence to him is to become evil. That's what <laughs> David Lewis said. I mean, of course, people people say that you know the, the sins of humanity are not finite because God is infinite in holiness or some kind of attribute. You know, you try to pin them down on what holiness is; they can never really tell you. Um, it's just otherness, yeah. Other again, otherness in respect mm -hmm. of what? Like he's he's, um, but but um, yeah. You know, they'll 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 say that um, you know you sin against God and he's infinitely holy or infinitely dignified or infinitely valuable or something. And therefore any finite sin becomes, comes infinite because it's a sin against, you know, uh, an infinite God. And well, what I would ask in regard to that is whether children or infants are capable of sinning against God in such a way. In other words, is moral knowledge here or the lack thereof, is that a mitigating factor? If the answer is yes, yeah, if, if the answer is no, and you believe like Pascal and so many more, uh, you know, gutsy um, Augustinians believed, you know, going back to I, I think Augustine and Anselm and all these people who say, yeah, you know, unbaptized ch children and babies, you know, they're they're in hell forever too. Maybe it's hell light, but no, they're in hell. They're not with him. Um, you know, if you if you say if you say moral knowledge is not a mitigator, you say the lack of moral knowledge is not a mitigating factor, you're in their company, but you've also made God Bolek. Um, if you say, okay, yeah, it's a, it's a mitigating factor. Um, you know, Jesus himself said, forgive them, they know not what they do. He didn't say forgive them because I feel like it. And he definitely didn't say forgive. He didn't. He didn't say damn them because they have the opportunity to repent. They already heard your perfect gospel, but uh, you know they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and it's time to just smite them. No, the way he spoke was as if somehow you know possession of moral knowledge was relevant to the the reckoning of of, of you know culpability, yeah. or blameworthiness, right? And so, um, how much how much moral knowledge does an adult have? It's some finite amount. It's not. It's yeah. not an infinite amount. And and the, the the question is what at what point do you have enough moral knowledge in order to be in order to be guilty of an infinite sin against God? Is it like when you're seven years old? Do seven year olds go to hell forever? Yeah. Is it when you're twelve year twelve years old? So that thirteen yeah. year olds go to hell forever? Like 
like and and it, you know it, it's 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 really a kind of madness because it's holding yeah it's holding mortals to a divine standard if yeah. all, if if any being has infinite moral knowledge whatever exactly that means it's not it's like only god has that knowledge and so god creates human beings and then holds them to the same rules that he would hold himself to is almost the the picture yeah. that 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 we're left with when we seriously entertain these these arguments from these sort of infinite holiness or moral worth yeah. of god um that is I really know, I compelling think, I, think, <laughs> I think in the literature they call it the equal status principle or something like that um it yeah. was, um i think oliver crisp writes about that could be wrong but 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 yeah so you know i i don't have much yeah. patience with those because because however you slice it it just just makes god into someone he's not that's yeah that's fascinating i've never even thought of it from that angle before either that's that's incredibly fascinating yeah because to say if and if like you can you always can say forgive them lord they don't know what they do because they're not god because if you if you say don't forgive them lord they know exactly what they're doing then you're saying they're all knowing hold them to your standard yeah that's fascinating i never thought it well i mean yeah i mean there's some kind of you know again as as i said maybe I said it or not i don't remember but I, i'm addicted to philosophy yeah i see things good. in terms of philosophical problems um i'd never majored in it but that's that's who i am i've always been thinking yeah. about philosophy um you know and i think in terms of like sorority's paradoxes it's it's the paradox of the heat how many stones do you have to throw into a pile before you have a heat how many hairs do you have to pluck off of someone's head before you can say they're bald kind of thing there's a threshold that gets passed <laughs> but it's graduated it's not binary and yet uh-huh. somehow on either side um of this threshold there does lie a binary um so uh or i mean this threshold is straddled by by something that is either or and so that's you know it's kind of a kind of a paradox and so i just look at that in terms of the moral knowledge thing it's like if there's enough there's some threshold where you can you can reach it and gain enough moral knowledge in order to be culpable of some infinite sin against an you know infinite infinitely holy god um where is where is it and that's again kind of like the lord for the sake of 50 will you not spare the city will not the judge of all the earth do right we find ourselves defying god to be more like himself mm-hmm. and you know again i would say the, the the truth is that you you know you, he's he, he in reality he's always he's always he's always more righteous and and more you know like like himself more perfect than than you can conceive so you could you should always keep pressing in that direction more or less yeah anyway yeah that's really good man that's fascinating i'm gonna be chewing on that for a long time yeah, this is extremely interesting, man. I've never thought of it that way before. Man. Well, I might I might head off here though, if that's all right with you. Um, no, I can totally understand. But it's getting um, the afternoon is wearing on. <laughs> yeah, but this is great though. I mean, this has been. I'm glad I at least got to hear a little bit of your story. But this is this has been so much fun and really. 
yeah I, fascinating I, tend to keep, I don't know I, I, I tend to keep veering off into philosophy rather than actually sharing my story no but it's good um, though I, I like that we got a little bit of your story but i think the stuff that you said and that we got to talk about is just like incredibly profound stuff i'm gonna have to be chewing on for a while and well there's a lot of know. stuff on your channel that i'm gonna be listening to for a while um when i decide that you know, someone is interesting and I want to talk to them. I don't tend to wait very long. So I, I listened to like a couple videos of yours and I was like, yeah, I think it's time to, to give this guy a call. So Thanks, uh, I'm glad you, yeah, I'm glad you reached out. I'm like, if I'm being honest, there's like a lot of the people that kind of go around in the circle. Like I'm usually very intimidated by because I'll watch, the, I'll listen to the internet that like, you know, your videos or something. And I'm like, sometimes I'm just like, I don't know if I'm tracking right. And then, uh, but uh, like sometimes Nate will go on like these rants too. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm following him, but I feel like I'm getting better at keeping up. And yeah, this Nate, has been really Nate, is, Nate is very high level. Um, he has a lot of erudition. He has a lot of um, like scholarly knowledge um, hmm. uh, that, you know, you, you've either read the books or you haven't. And um, yeah, so yeah, he's, 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 he's very, he's very high level. But the way, way the same with you like the way you see things and has just been fascinating to me like all the videos yeah i have add i'm not able to actually read (laughs) as much as nate this is is another way of saying what i just said um but 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 i i still have a very active mind someone's too active so um, (laughs) it's good though yeah and it it always yeah it opens up broadens my perspective and helps me to see it from a different angle and a different way and yeah and yeah well you know maybe i'm just making excuses my impulse control is worse in the afternoons and maybe next time we talk i'll actually like manage to let you talk um but in the meantime i'm gonna i'm gonna be listening you know i'm just addicted to content you know i i i just listen on 2x 3x just like uh oh i do consume uh uh youtube videos Mm -hmm. or actually if you have a podcast send me the link so that i can listen while i'm walking the dog but um uh yeah i'm gonna just be getting back into the rest of your stuff because it's very cool and it kind of reminds me there's a podcast called the spirit answers podcast um it's a cool podcast it's a little bit more long it's a little bit more fundamentalist say than than you and i are um it's by alex machuka and the conversation with celeste mott reminded me of that but again a little bit less fundamental fundamentalist and a little bit more i don't know whatever whatever we are Let's yeah, say yeah. Radical. i'd like to talk um, to her again i haven't i don't that's the only time i've ever spoken to her and i've list, i found i was listening to actually it was a it was like a witch podcast and she was on yeah. the i think it was and and she was on giving her story on that and so i just reached out to her on instagram and she was willing to do the conversation but she's kind of like and the stuff she suggested for me to read and everything, I'm like, this is she's got definitely a good eye on things. And it'd be fun well, Jordan Peterson would say she she has very high trait openness, mm-hmm. and the way he talks about that trait is like, if you have extremely high trait openness, you almost have trouble integrating your identity. And um, so, in other words, she's someone who could really begin at at the sort of polar opposite end of say Protestant Christianity, like hardcore, like you know, fundamentalist or, or, you know, just hardcore Protestant Christianity, and then migrate all the way over to the other side. And, and that's kind of like, you know, dialectically, things have a tendency to evolve into their opposites kind of thing. You know, Jung, I, I, I feel like you're familiar with Jung, you, know, you call that enantiodromia, something like that. 
um, the tendency of phenomena to become their opposites. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so she like, like she has a lot of, I guess you would say trade openness to, to, to be, and, and a lot of intellectual honesty to say like, well, you know, now I'm actually attracted to, you know, something in, in, you know, like hardcore Protestant theology that it was normally the sort of other against which I defined myself, right? Or in, in opposite in opposition to which I, I defined myself, and and so I thought she was really interesting, and um, you know I could I could relate to a lot of what she said, you know, like like seeing the truth, and and multiple and, and to what you said, and in what you know what you articulated, seeing the truth in multiple points of view um, simultaneously, and and um, yeah, anyway, no, it's it's a it's a great. Um, it's a great podcast and so at the uh, it's a great channel and the podcast is called uh almond tree podcast or uh yeah i think it's just called almond tree but i'll i'll send okay. you the link for sure though yeah I can yeah. Do that. yeah yeah i'll do it all right well thanks thanks again so much so you, do yeah. everybody just call you cal basically yes okay, okay all right or, or kale kale okay. doesn't really make sense but okay um, yeah okay and how do you say that your full name though? Kalia? Is that what you say? Kalia? My parents say Kalia. Kalia, okay. Um, okay. Which is technically a mispronunciation. I'll stick with Cal. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for doing this, man. This has been a lot of fun. Hope, just, yeah, reach out to me anytime too. I'm always down. If I'm free, I'm always up for this. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And, and also, if you don't mind, send me the video and send me the, uh, send me, but really, I'm more interested in the audio because I'll put the audio on, on my uh, podcast. Okay. Yeah. I think it's, it saves both. So yeah, I can do that. Awesome. Yeah. If right, you cool. could send me yeah. those at your next convenience. Oh, send me your podcast link too as well. I didn't know you had. Okay. Yeah. Own. Yeah. Well, I haven't done anything in a while. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We'll, we'll pick up what's, the conversation. What's the name of that? Oh, so it'll be I on the audio. It, in, in a sort of, in a sort of hubristic where, you know, in, 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 in a kind of intellectual hubris, I, I called it universalism against the world. Okay. And, and that sounds um, familiar, at that, actually. At Maybe that I've time, I, I kind of, I, I didn't hold ideas with an open hand the way that I aspire to now. I was, I was more sort of closed-minded. Um, but also, I, it was to highlight the sort of paradox of Christian universalism, where it's simultaneously, you know, highly inclusive and highly exclusive. You know, insisting that Christ is the center of Howard Storm told me Christ is the only reality. Christ is the, like the center of, you know, not just creation, but it is 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 the center of the whole symbolic world as well. Everything, um, every everything inevitably, you know, bends back uh, on on him. So you're insisting that while at at the same time insisting that. Um, uh, you know, everyone is at least potentially saved. So, you know, it's kind of a, it, you, you, you catch flack um, from, from multiple sides um, because, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of you know, non-Christians don't like Jesus and a lot of Christians don't like universalism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's kind of, yeah. I guess, what I was thinking of when I, when yeah. I titled the podcast that, but. Yeah. yeah, I like that though. That's cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. So, all right.
Cool. Well, thanks, right. man. Thanks again. I'll, I'll send this to you as soon as it's done, whatever rendering thing. So cool. Awesome. I really appreciate it. We'll pick it up next time. All right. Sounds great. I'll okay. see you, Kyle. See you later.